I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today, as we continue our trip through the Gospels, we'll be looking at passages in Matthew chapter 12, Mark chapter 2 and 3, Luke chapter 6, and John chapter 5. Here's what we're going to see in today's uh, reading with regard to Jesus' ministry. These events in this passage today, these passages, take place between the second and third Passover feast of Jesus' ministry. In chapter 5, Jesus goes to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. That's probably the Passover. Jesus visits the pool of Bethesda, and there he performs a healing. Then it's probably back in Galilee in Matthew chapter 12, Mark 2, and Luke chapter 6. And in this passage, these passages today, we'll also see that Jesus formally appoints 12 of his disciples as apostles. So first, let's read John chapter 5, just one verse for a moment, and that's verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There's been considerable discussion among Bible scholars regarding the feast referenced here in verse 1. Is it the Passover feast? Does it really matter? Well, it does matter if you want to track the length of Jesus' ministry. John only of the four gospel writers logs the occurrences of the Passover feast leading up to the last one, and that's the one where Jesus was crucified. The first is found in John chapter 2, verse 13. If we consider this, the one here in chapter 5, verse 1, the second Passover feast, then the third is found in John chapter 6, verse 4, and finally the fourth and last Passover feast is that day when Jesus was crucified. That being the case, Jesus' ministry lasted three full years plus those months from the time he was baptized by John in Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, leading up to the first Passover in John chapter 2, verse 13. So, three and one half years would seem to be a reliable assessment of the length of Jesus' ministry. And there's one more piece of evidence that adds validity to Jesus' ministry length at three to four years, and that's found in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. In that passage, Jesus gives a reprieve to the fig tree, which seems to be analogous to his ministry to Israel. That period after the reprieve just happens to be three-plus years in that passage. If the feast in chapter 3 is not the second Passover feast, based upon what I believe is probably a declaration, Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, of a three-plus year ministry, then this feast would be one of the other two major feasts in the same year, the Feast of Weeks, which is seven weeks after the Passover, or perhaps the Feast of Tabernacles, six months after the Passover. That still leaves a three-year-plus ministry scenario intact. In chapter 5, verses 2 through 15, we see that Jesus demonstrates an awesome bedside manner. We're going to look at the healing at the pool of Bethesda. Verse 2, Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool, and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. 
And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie, and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day, it is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward Jesus findeth him in the temple, and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. Well, the sick folks are gathered around the pool in Jerusalem, waiting for the angel to stir the water. First one in afterward got, got healed. The impotent, the Greek word there being astheneo, meaning sick, weak, impotent, that man could never make it to the water because another always made it in before him. He's too weak. Jesus solves the problem in John chapter 5, verse 8, where it says, Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. <laughs> that's pretty awesome bedside manner. Well, that sets off more fireworks. This takes place in Jerusalem during the time of one of the festivals, probably the Passover, when Jews are present from everywhere practicing their best Judaistic stuff. When a Jewish bigwig sees the impotent man carrying his bed around, never mind that he hasn't been able to do this for the last 38 years, the issue becomes big. I mean, a big issue is, hey, you can't be carrying your bed around on the Sabbath day. Now the talk centers around who told the man he could break the law by carrying his bed on the Sabbath. Wow. First day out on his new wheels and he gets ticketed by the religion police. This was a sad bunch of religionists, don't you agree? On first interrogation, the man does not know the identity of Jesus as the healer. Later, after a meeting with Jesus in the temple, the man is able to identify him. And these Jewish religionists go at it again in an attempt to entrap Jesus. A couple of points should be made regarding this episode with the Jewish leaders. First of all, there is no law within the law of Moses that would have forbidden the man from carrying his bed around on the Sabbath day. The Pharisees made that one up. It was part of their oral tradition where they had embellished the law of Moses. Secondly... Notice in verses 11 and 15 how that this healed man seems to be something less than grateful to Jesus for his newly acquired ability to walk. When questioned about his infraction, the carrying the bed on the Sabbath day, he first blames he that made me whole, his own words, for his own violation of the Jews' law. But then upon discovery of Jesus' identity, he makes a return trip back to the Jews to report that Jesus was the one responsible. Come to think of it, I've met Christians who seemed ungrateful to our Lord for the marvelous grace of God that's been extended to them through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Haven't you met those kind of people? It should also be noted that Jesus healed just the one man that day next to the pool of Bethesda. 
that's pretty significant because of the fact that there would have been a host of sick people next to that pool, but Jesus chose just one man to heal. It's important to remember that while Jesus had power over physical sickness, his mission was to redeem mankind from spiritual sickness by his death on the cross. These miracles of healing were necessary to establish his identity as the prophesied Messiah. Jesus framed this mission near the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. Well, the Jewish leaders, they just want Jesus dead. Look at verses 16 to 18. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Listen, nothing matters to these Jewish leaders except that their reputations and positions were being threatened by Jesus. Jesus tells them in verse 17, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Subsequently, they use this occasion of healing as another reason why Jesus needs to be dead. We see that in verse 18. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Here's the reality on this. These Jewish leaders were familiar with the prophecy of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Now listen closely to what those two verses say. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government at peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, that passage that we just read in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, it clearly establishes that the Messiah will be God on earth. Remember the words, the mighty God, the everlasting Father? The problem is that the Jewish leaders were corrupt, and Jesus had identified them as such on more than one occasion. In John chapter 5, beginning with verse 19, down through verse 36, Jesus answers these Jewish leaders. Verse 19, Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. That all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. 
Marvel not of this, for the hour is coming in that which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good into the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil into the resurrection of damnation. I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. He sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that ye might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light. And you were willing for a season to rejoice in this light. But I have a greater witness than that of John, for the works which the Father hath sent me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. Now Jesus is walking a fine line when speaking to these Jewish leaders, which he always did. There would come a time when Jesus would lay down his life as he had already prophesied in John chapter 2, verses 19 to 21, and he said it again in John chapter 3, verse 14. However, that time would be chosen by Jesus, not by these hypocrites. They're looking for Jesus to say something that is clearly indisputable evidence of blasphemy. You'll notice that Jesus often answers them by referring to himself in third person rather than first person, as he does here when he refers to himself as the Son. It would have been much simpler for the Jews to entrap Jesus if he would just say, I, first person, rather than the Son, third person. He follows this pattern until verse 24 when he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that hath sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. Well, they must have thought, Ah, we got him now. Well, maybe not. Jesus uses the personal pronoun my, but that quotation standing alone, well, that just doesn't give them the evidence they need to say that he called himself God. It's very clear to everyone, but in the court of law, that could be understood to mean only that he was a prophet. However, when we read that verse in the context with the whole discourse, it's obvious to those listening and to those of us reading that Jesus is clearly saying that he is God in the flesh. He then goes back to third person references down through verse 29. Jesus clearly identifies himself in verse 27 as God in the flesh when he says he has the authority to execute judgment. But he again uses third person references so that these words can't be used as evidence of blasphemy by the Jews. As a matter of fact, Jesus refers to himself as the Son ten times between verses 19 and 27. Well, let's take a closer look at this reference to the Son. Jesus repeatedly uses it here in the presence of these Jewish leaders. Now, notice what it says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him. Well, no question there. That's a reference to the Messiah. Now, on the other hand, Ezekiel refers to himself. Ezekiel was a prophet. He refers to himself as the Son of Man 93 times in his prophecy. While Jesus is referred to as the Son of God 28 times in the Gospel accounts, 
He never uses it as a self-reference. When your only interest is framing Jesus for blasphemy, one can see the nature of their frustration. Now, beginning with verse 30, it's all back to first-person references again. But no statement he makes stands alone as sufficient court evidence for conviction on blasphemy charges. The Jews understand it that way, but it is unusable in court. Ah, Maybe verse 36 will provide sufficient evidence. Here's what that says. But I have a greater witness than that of John for the works which the Father hath sent me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. Well, I guess not. In court, that could again be taken as a reference to Jesus being a prophet. No blasphemy in being a prophet. So notice closely in this section that Jesus fully acknowledges his identity as God in the flesh, but gives them, those Jewish leaders, nothing that they could take to court because of his careful way of expressing it. The two resurrections Jesus mentions in verse 29 are not new concepts to those Jews. Daniel 12:2 says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. All right, let's take a look at the collective resurrections that take place in the Scripture. First of all, Old Testament believers. At the resurrection of Jesus, we see that in chapter 27 of Matthew, verses 52 and 53, and Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. That's when the Old Testament believers will be actually resurrected. Or should I say, that's when they were resurrected. And uh, Paul speaks of that clearly in Ephesians 4, 8-10. through 10. Those saved since the resurrection of Jesus at the rapture, they'll be resurrected. And we see that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 and 1 Corinthians 15, 51-58. And then we have another group, those saved between the rapture and the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. We see their resurrection in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. And finally, we have a group of people who have declined to trust God by faith prior to the first incarnation of Jesus, and those who have rejected Jesus as Savior since. In other words, all the people who have rejected a covenant relationship with God. Well, they're resurrected to the white throne judgment. We find them referenced in Revelation chapter 20, verse 5, and a detailed description of their judgment in verses 11 through 15, a passage we know as the white throne judgment. Now, in verse 37, we see that Jesus pretty much says, well, enough about me, who are you? Beginning now with verse 37. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe, which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. 
But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? Well, Jesus had just finished telling them all about himself in verses 19 to 36. Now it's time to identify these Jewish leaders for exactly who they are. Notice the itemization that Jesus gives of their standing before God when he says in verse 37, You've neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. In verse 38, You have not his word abiding in you. In verses 39 and 40, You don't have eternal life. In verse 42, You have not the love of God in you. In verses 43 and 44, You prefer the honor of men rather than God. And finally, in verses 45 to 47, the very words of Moses condemn you. Well, that pretty much sums up the real position of these Jewish leaders before God. After hearing this, you know, they're fumed. All that verbal abuse without a thing to take to court. But Jesus had issued them a challenge in verses 39 to 40. Here's what he said. Search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me, and you will not come to me that you might have life. Just as Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, they, these Jewish leaders, they rejected Jesus. The Old Testament prophets frequently prophesied the coming Messiah. Had these Jewish leaders carefully studied those prophecies, they would have recognized that Jesus was that one. But when did Moses prophesy concerning the Messiah? Well, the answer is in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 22. The Jews of Jesus' day understood that passage to be prophetic concerning the Messiah. Now, I've written an article on that, and it's entitled, Moses Prophesied the Messiah. You'll find it under the topic section of BibleTrack.org. Now we find an incident in the cornfield. Beginning now, we're going to be looking at a passage out of Matthew 12, another out of Mark 2, and another out of Luke chapter 6, all recounting the same occasion. First of all, Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were in hunger, and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have you not read what David did? When he was in hunger, and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priest. Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you, that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if he had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. Now let's look at the same incident as recorded by Mark in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day do that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have you never read what David did when he had need and was hungered, he and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest, 
and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priest, and gave also to them that were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Now let's look at the same incident, Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. And it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first, that he went through the cornfields, and his disciples plucked the ears of corn, and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. And certain of the Pharisees said unto them, Why do you that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not read as much as this, what David did, when himself was hungry, and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God, and did take and eat the showbread, and gave also to them that were with him, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priest alone. And he said unto them, that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Well, plucking corn out of the fields for personal consumption on the Sabbath day. No, no, said the Pharisees, and they demanded an explanation. Jesus refers them back to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 3-6, through 6, when David and his men were fed by the high priest from the loaves of consecrated bread. In that passage, there was no indication that God was at all displeased with his action. Furthermore, the priests were overly embellishing the law of reaping on the Sabbath day. The disciples weren't reaping. They were only taking advantage of the provision of the law Based upon Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, it says, When thou comest into the standing corn of thy neighbor, then thou mayest pluck the ears with thine hand, but thou shalt not move a sickle unto thy neighbor's standing corn. Reaping would have been moving with a sickle upon the corn. And then here's that Son of Man phrase again in Mark 2:28. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Matthew records a second example by Jesus to these Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. And that's the fact that the Mosaic Law assigns priests in the tabernacle and temple duties that they are required to perform on the Sabbath day as seen in Numbers chapter 28, verses 9 and 10. Both of these examples are designed to show the Pharisees that their oral traditions or rather their additions, additions to the law of Moses were not capturing its essence. These Pharisees were missing the mark. Jesus then quotes from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 in Matthew 12, 7. Here's what he quotes here. But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Hosea prophesied during the time when the northern kingdom fell. Hosea's point back then and that of Jesus on this occasion is that they had missed the real point of the law of Moses. Keeping the law of Moses in its deviated form had become their object over an actual relationship with God. Incidentally, Jesus had quoted Hosea chapter 6 verse 6 on a previous occasion, and that was back in Matthew chapter 9 verse 13. Now we're going to see three more passages out of Matthew 12, Mark 3, and Luke 6, where we see that Men sometimes are treated worse than animals. Matthew chapter 12, verse 9. And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days, that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, 
And if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole, like as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. Now let's look at the same occasion in Mark chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he saith unto him, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he looked around about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Now over to Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 6. And it came to pass also on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught. And there was a man whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts, and said to the man which had the withered hand, Rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he arose and stood forth. Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing, Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And looking round about upon them all, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And they were filled with madness, and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. <laughs> These Jewish leaders, well, consisting of scribes, Pharisees, and probably a few Sadducees sprinkled in, they anticipate that Jesus is about to heal a man on the Sabbath day. They're just licking their chops. Another chance to perhaps collect enough evidence on Jesus to prosecute him for blasphemy before the Roman courts. Jesus, of course, knows what's on their minds, but heals the man's withered hand anyway. Jesus points out that none of them would object to rescuing an animal on the Sabbath, so why not a human? From their perspective, who cares about consistency? Well, certainly not these highly esteemed religious leaders. They immediately seek out the Herodians to tell what has just taken place. The Herodians formed a religious party akin to the Sadducees, but they were also sympathetic to the Roman government and to its laws. Moreover, they were also supportive of the kingship of the Herods who reigned in this region. These views were not shared by the Pharisees. Hmm. Pharisees aligned with Herodians, in cahoots with one another. They must really, really hate Jesus. Incidentally, Mark is the only one who reports the attitude of Jesus in verse 5 of his account when he says of Jesus, He had looked round about on them with anger. The word anger there comes from the Greek word orge. This word is often translated wrath, and is so used in John chapter 3 verse 36 and Romans chapter 1 verse 18. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. Oh, also Colossians chapter 3, verse 6. 
the term wrath of God is used there. The wrath of God comes upon hypocrisy. One more thing. There was no Old Testament passage that forbade healing on the Sabbath day. The Pharisees made that one up also. One of many laws that they had appended to the Mosaic law. We see in the next passages of Scripture that this Jesus movement is really, really caught on. First, let's look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they should not make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Same passage, same incident, in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. For he had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him, as many had plagues and unclean spirits. When they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. Now moving over to Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, let's see what he reports. And he came down with them and stood in the plain, and the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem, and from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And they that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him, and he healed them all. After healing the man with the withered hand, a great crowd gathers around Jesus, and he heals them all. We see from the passage in Mark that the crowds that follow are not just Jews, but there are some Gentiles as well, from Tyre, Sidon, Idumea. Matthew cites this reach toward the Gentiles as a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, which we find in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Then we find in two passages of Scripture, Mark chapter 3 and Luke chapter 6, that Jesus ordains the original twelve apostles. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And he goeth up into a mountain, and calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him. And he ordained twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses, and to cast out devils. And Simon he surnamed Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, and he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder, and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him, and they went into the house. 
Now let's look at Luke's account in Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 12, down through verse 16. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray, and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. At this point in time, we are well into the second year of Jesus' ministry. It's now time for Jesus to pick out twelve men from among his disciples who will become his twelve apostles. The apostles were a subset of Jesus' disciples. Any follower of Jesus was a disciple. But the twelve men that Jesus chose from among them were, from this time forward, to be special messengers of Jesus. The Greek word apostolos means messenger. By the way, Simon the Canaanite was a full-fledged Jew just like the others. Oh, by the way, the title Canaanite here is a translation of a Syriac word. And it's transliterated to the Greek word Canaanites, which was a tag given to those who were members of a particular Jewish political party of the day. It actually has no relationship whatsoever to the Old Testament Canaanite or to the people from the land of Canaan. So what I'm saying here is that Simon, the Canaanite, was all Jew all the time. So we find the whole list of the twelve disciples in Mark chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, and Luke chapter 6, verses 14 through 16. So if you ever have to name them, here they are again. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, always called the traitor or the betrayer. We also find a list of the twelve disciples, or the twelve apostles rather, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.